Welcome to the Grace of Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence to encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. You can learn more about us at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Over the next two weeks, we'll be unpacking Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. If you want to start turning that way, that's great. If you brought a Bible with you today, if not, it'll be up on the screen. Um, Today, we're just going to cover verses 1 through 3. Then next week, uh, we'll do the rest. The passage will be on the screen behind me. Um, But before we kind of jump into that, our focus passage here begins with the word, therefore. Um, If you want to put that first verse up there. Um, Anytime you have a word like, therefore, you should automatically like connect in your head this is a conjunction this is like sentences just don't start with something like therefore there was something before it that's important so anytime you're reading your bible and you just jump into a passage and it's like and or but or therefore or something along those lines you should probably read back a few verses so you can kind of like get the lay of the land of what we're talking about otherwise it might be kind of weird and you're like therefore what um so in the passage before, to recap, Philippians 3, 12 through 21, which is what Pastor Chris preached on last week, Paul is kind of beginning to wrap up the letter. Well, if you grew up in the church listening to sermons like I did, you might have heard it referred to as like he's landing the plane. Um, the thing, the journey is coming to an end. We're wrapping this thing up. We're starting to unpack kind of like the, the final points of the letter. And in that passage, Paul was urging the Philippians to remain faithful to Jesus in the midst of adversity. He notes that some who were once followers of Jesus did not just decide, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. They actually were becoming hostile to the Christian faith. Um, the, The passage says that they became enemies to the cross. And he's calling the church to trust God and to keep their eyes on him because God is faithful and the inheritance that awaits us in eternity through life with Christ is worth the endurance, is worth the wait. And in a world where so many are beginning to turn away from Christ, not just in this sense of, and I don't know if this is a good thing for me anymore, um, it's, it's, it's becoming a hostile turning. Um, and that, that's very much the heart of that passage there. So it's kind of from that heart that we can begin reading the passage today. Uh, Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, other translations say, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. God, um, we stand here together and trust that it's God-breathed, that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be equipped to do every good work. Uh, God, we open our hearts to you. And we invite you to form us according to your truth. We know that you know what's right and good and what leads to flourishing. So we ask that you'd help us today. Uh, Help us receive that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, disunity is one of the easiest aspects of kind of Western culture to critique. Um, The United States specifically was founded on this principle of freedom where individuals could come and experience freedom. Freedom from oppressive governments, freedom from forced religion, 
freedom to start fresh, to start over. Today, the same ideal reigns. Freedom to be who you want to be, to believe what you want to believe, to establish what is good, true, right, and beautiful in your own eyes. And what happens when you place millions of people on a single continent and you encourage and embrace this kind of self-autonomy is disunity, is chaos, is destruction. Because what I think is good, right, true, and beautiful might be different than what you think is good, right, true, and beautiful. How do we exist when we have these kinds of different lanes or different beliefs? Conflict is inevitable. And you hear this a lot in the church. You hear uh, the church critique kind of the chaos and brokenness of the world because of the disunity you see. You see it in politics. You see it in kind of social circles. There's just so many different things that all around us we're just experiencing and witnessing disunity and chaos and division. This isn't an uncommon uh, teaching from the church, and I agree with it. I think the culture of self-autonomy that we live in is eating itself alive. But shame on the church if it is unwilling to recognize the division and disunity that can so happily, happily, so easily happen within its own walls. On a major scale, you have a profound history of denominational conflict. Uh, one denomination that really publicly ostracizes or critiques another denomination uh, within cities and local churches. Um, every single city has a church that was birthed out of a really gross and nasty church split, a leader that took half the congregation and went and started something new because they disagreed with maybe some of the politics or some of the leadership structure of what was happening. Um, within congregations, the church is prone to uh, have unhealthy cultures of gossip, power dynamics, pursuit of influence or selfish intentions, uh, cliques, and more. There's just so many things within the church that if we were to really take a critical eye, we could say, man, we don't look a whole lot different a lot of the time. The church is not void of disunity and conflict. Unfortunately, it can often be a hub for it. Um, perhaps you've had an experience in this church or in another where you felt at odds with another leader, maybe with another church member, with a specific mission or agenda or function of the church. And because we all have different preferences, passions, and ideas, if we try to do this thing side by side long enough, eventually we're going to butt heads. Eventually we're going to like rub each other the wrong way and feel a certain way about someone else that we're doing life with. Disagreement is inevitable. And there are times where it might be appropriate or necessary to divide or to separate from one another. Theological disagreements can cause a significant difficulty uh, for people to stay in the same worship community together. Uh, Dr. Gary Brashears was a seminary professor of mine, really a hero of the faith. In my eyes, he established a really helpful system for determining uh, kind of the levels of unity and how we should assess at what point do we think, okay, this is getting too difficult for us to remain in relationship together. I've got a slide for it that should be helpful. And this is assessing theological um, beliefs. He's, he's categorized it into four degrees. We have a category of die for. The first category are beliefs that we would be willing to die for. These are essential Christian beliefs that if removed from the equation, it just doesn't really make sense for us to associate with ourselves and call each other Christians. If we were to take away certain theological realities and teachings from the church, you'd say, you know, you should probably just 
go join this religion or go start your own religion because this is a pretty critical aspect of the church and it's not going to make sense for us to try to stand in the same boat and say that we're on team Jesus because avoiding or saying that that truth isn't correct, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Um, These are critical doctrines like the divinity of Christ, the nature of God, the work of Christ and other essential beliefs that make Christianity what it is. Second category is there is divide for. There are issues that we might say, hey, you know, you're with kind of the, the major critical issues, but this is significant enough that it's going to make doing life together pretty challenging. Um, you might see uh, a, an example of this in the idea of uh, if, if you're Pentecostal or if you're charismatic, Uh, it would not be easy for you to go jump into your local Reformed church, like a a Baptist or a Presbyterian church. They're not going to affirm certain really significant theological realities that you believe and that you accept and that you probably practice. You're going to feel really out of place, and there's a chance there's going to be a lot of conflict because you're going to be disappointed that they won't teach on this subject or that they're teaching on a subject a certain way. It's going to make being in community really difficult. And you can divide and still respect and say, hey, we all believe the same essential and critical beliefs, but it would be really hard for us to worship in the same place together because practically we have some theological differences that are pretty severe. The third category is debate for. These are beliefs that we're willing to sit around and debate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to separate. These might be important ideas to work through, but there's no reason to divide over them because they don't address any critical nature and they shouldn't really address our ability to relate to one another and do life together. An example of this might be what you believe about creation. Uh, Whether you are a young earther, an old earther, whether you believe in theistic evolution, whatever it may be, we can go round and round on the debates like that. But at the end of the day, where we come out on that is like, that's not critical to us being able to do life together. Um, We can disagree on a topic like that and still believe plenty of other essential beliefs, enough for us to have unity and say, hey, that's okay that that's the conclusion you've come to after your research. This is where I'm at, and it's not going to really hurt anything for us to stay together. And then finally, there are preferential beliefs or ideas that we can decide for, personal convictions that maybe have less or uh, little to no biblical precedence or command. Examples that we see throughout the New Testament include things like dietary preferences or Sabbath observance rituals. There's room for you to have a conviction that you said, this is how I want to operate, and I would even believe that it's God-inspired that I'm operating this way, but I don't really have anything on text or in paper for me to tell you that you have to operate this way. And so that's a really helpful scale for us to consider the theological unity that we should have together and where we can draw some lines to say, you know what, that's going to be really challenging, or you know what, we should fight through this, and we should work together to stay together. Outside of theological issues, we might divide or disassociate because of unrepentant sin for someone that's in the community that claims to be a follower of Jesus, that claims to be on the same path as others, um, but their life is so blatantly opposed to that, uh, that we have to get to a point that says, hey, this is hurting the community because of your activity or because of your sin. I don't really think that you're on the same path and track as everyone else. And we might have to say, hey, it's maybe best that you find a different community to try to worship in. There might be someone in the community as well who's very divisive, 
who's stirring up conflict and issues, who's talking bad about the pastor behind his back and is stirring up skepticism and concern and all these kinds of things. And it might be appropriate to say, hey, this is not healthy for our community. You are causing drama. You're making things really anxious or nervous. It's probably best that we ask you to go worship in a different community. There is a point where division is not just appropriate, but it's probably necessary. But unfortunately, a lot of the times, people end up separating because of social drama or personal offense or preferential beliefs or ideas. And rather than taking some of the biblical paths and ideas that are offered to us to restore unity, which is the uh, subject of today's passage uh, and the sermon, uh, we see many people walk away from the church and even Jesus altogether because of the conflicts and the stirring up that happens between God's people. We read in Philippians 4, 1 through 3, a very short and kind of interesting passage there. It's a dispute. It's about a dispute between two ladies in the church in Philippi. Paul recognized that this conflict had the potential to really start some big issues. And so he does something he rarely ever does, and he like addresses them by name. There are times that Paul will address people by name, but it's pretty rare. Um, and, and we'll kind of break that down a little bit more later. Um, so there's just three short verses. It's a really awkward, we don't, we don't get a ton unpacked about what's going on or why they're fighting. But I think as we think about this and break this down, there's a lot for us to consider that's powerful and relevant for our lives together. So first, um, you know, Paul's first instruction in this passage in verse 1 is toward the community at large. And it's to stand firm in the Lord. This comes on the heels of recognizing the difficult and kind of tension-filled moment that the community found themselves in. Uh, There's people who are trying to divide the church. There are people who have become enemies to the cross. And Paul's first thing that he says to them is to stand firm. We read in verse 1, it says, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. This really echoes kind of like back in way back in uh, 10 weeks ago or so, chapter 1 that we looked at, where we just see like Paul's heart for this community. He loves them. He cares so much about them. He thinks the world of this church. You go read Paul's other letters to churches, he doesn't always feel this way about some other churches. But he loves this church, and he uses really amazing and, and profound language. My, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Like, this is very sincere fatherly language to use to this community. And he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. The loving and compassionate father figure sees the possible danger ahead and begins to urge the church to stand firm together. Disunity and fighting is inevitable. You're seeing people walk away from the church. You're seeing people become enemies to the church. Stand firm in the Lord. Do not let the conflicts around you create some sort of doubt or concern in your head or or maybe entice or encourage you to jump into the disunity. Paul's telling them, stand firm in the Lord. Don't let the circumstances around you make you jump ship because that is going to be the temptation when conflicts arise. This is certainly the case in the church today. The deconstruction movement, which is seeing people utilize you know, tools like social media to share their stories or journeys of departing from the Christian faith, is full of examples of the slippery slope that comes when conflicts arise in the church and they're not dealt with properly. 
Now, refining and growing and breaking off some old beliefs and habits um, is, is not a bad thing. And I don't knock that aspect of the deconstruction movement. I think that there are plenty of things, systematic or organizational issues, that pop up within the church that are worth critique, that are worth sitting back and saying, hey, that's not very Christ-like. That's not what this church is trying to be like. And we should assess, continually look at those kinds of issues and say, hey, we want to be a community that's not about that. And so I don't knock that aspect of deconstruction or, or anything like that. I think people should be able to work through their questions, their doubts, their issues, their struggles in the church. I'm not upset about that. But the problem is what you see so often in the deconstruction movement of our time is that it's often experiences or feelings of pain and bitterness from a specific offense that was never properly dealt with or handled. And when an offense isn't dealt with properly, uh, more pain typically wells up. And things like anger or revenge or a divisive spirit can kind of just begin to stir up inside of us because we've just got this experience or this, this pain that just never got handled. And so we start to let things kind of stack up on top of it. And all of a sudden, we end up in this really destructive space where now we're contributing to the division and to the brokenness within a community because of how we've been impacted by this situation. What started out maybe as a healthy idea of wanting to grow and help others turn from you know, this, this bitter or, or difficult situation that they might have gone through so that they, the church can be better, so that people can grow, ends up turning into this really isolated existence of someone who used to follow Jesus because they didn't take the avenues properly to restore unity. And now they've become not just a follower or not a follower of Jesus anymore, not just part of the church, but sometimes often you see people become enemies to the church. They loved Jesus, they wanted to follow him, and they loved being a part of Christian community. But when unsolved conflict and tension manifested into pain and bitterness and anger, revenge, they didn't just walk away from the community of believers, they walked away from Jesus altogether. We must stand firm and avoid the, danger, the dangerous tendencies we see in the culture around us. Conflicts are coming, whether you like it or not, and the enemy would love to see them destroy not just our connection with one another, but our faith altogether. Isn't it funny how big problems often have like really small beginnings? Uh, this is the case in nearly anything that has like um, a mechanical makeup or uh, maybe an organization or a structural kind of thing. So much of the time, a big issue was started by something very small uh, that just never got handled. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a part of a machine that just slowly worked itself out of alignment. And you don't really notice anything at first, and you might even put up with it. You're sitting there thinking, well, it's still doing its job. It's going to be just fine. But over time, as it's operating incorrectly, it's going to work itself even more out of alignment, or it even has the possibility to damage another function within the machine because it's not operating the way it's supposed to. I bought a... 2010 Toyota Camry when I was in college. And for the most part, it's been a really great car for me and my family. Um, but over the past few years, it has had this really horrible tendency of like the rotors warping super easily. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's not a big deal if you just pay up and you eat your popcorn and go to Les Schwab and uh, sit around because then it's covered under a warranty. 
Um, you know, when five, six months down the road and you're braking and your car's kind of skipping and you're like, what's going on? You know, they'll replace it for free and it's great. Um, but it can be really annoying to have to call a Schwab again and make that call. I just had to call them this week. Are my rotors still under warranty? Can I come in? Uh, and to which, you know, they said, oh, no, your brake pads are bad too. So, you, you know, you got to pay up this time. So we'll see how it goes. Um, the problem is it can be really annoying to have to deal with, to have to fix that every, you know, every five, six, seven months when it pops up. But the issue is if I don't address that, as my car comes to a jolting, bouncy stop at every, I mean, I'm going 25 miles an hour, and this thing is skipping like you were just like shredding down the highway. If you let that go on long enough, you're going to work up other issues in your car. Your car's not meant to just bounce like that all the time. You're going to do more damage to your braking system. You're going to have other things start to work loose in the car. So you need to get it fixed before it becomes a bigger problem. The same is true when conflicts arise in our lives and in the church. There might be a small offense that makes you feel uneasy about someone. And then the next time that they do something that's not preferable or something that offends you, because you didn't ever handle or deal with the offense from before, you kind of let it stack on top of the next one. And then you're maybe with them in small group and you hear something else they say or they treat you a certain way and you've got a third. And next thing you know, you're doing really unhealthy things like I just hate the way they like talk about their politics. And have you noticed the way they parent their kids and all these kinds of things? And now you've built this case up against this person when it just started from like a couple minor offensive issues that you could say, hey, man, that really hurt my feelings or like that really wasn't a kind way of handling that. We probably wouldn't be at this point. But unfortunately, you let or I let this situation just stack up and it gets so much worse. And now there's so much more work that we have to do when it is time to address this. There'll be more to forgive. There's going to be more to apologize for. There's going to be more to have to unpack. And it becomes a really dangerous thing when we just let small issues go by the wayside. Because it's one of those things that you let small things happen, and they become big things over time. Conflicts are inevitable. And like a loving father who sees the danger ahead, Paul compassionately warns the church to stand firm because big problems often have small beginnings. The second uh, section here, Paul shifts his focus to the two ladies at the center of the conflict. Iodia and Syntyche. What amazing names. Uh, those poor gals. Isn't that kind of funny? Like, we translate some names like Paul and Peter, and that's Iodia, and that's Syntyche. It's just kind of funny how it all works. He writes, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Again, this is a remarkable moment for Paul because he doesn't go and call people out very specifically in a community all that often. Um, he does, and he's willing to in some places, um, but what might even be more remarkable is that they get addressed personally without any reference or description or unpacking of what the conflict is that's going on between them. He just name drops them in a verse and then moves on to the next one. We really have no idea what's going on in this text. It's not there, and any ideas that you hear from me or from anyone else is truly speculative because it's, there's no evidence of what the issue is between these people. Here's the deal, though. Paul isn't afraid to take sides when someone's out of place or in the wrong, though. 
we see throughout other letters that Paul is willing to call out heretics. And he is willing to defend the truth when somebody's being divisive or when somebody's chosen the wrong path. Galatians 2 tells us that Paul confronted Peter when he was being a hypocrite and that he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles because he was afraid of criticism from the Jews. Paul approached and confronted Peter and said, you're wrong for this. This is a racist and sinful thing that you are doing. You should be willing to associate yourself with the non-Jews. We know that Paul critiqued a young man who was having an inappropriate relationship with his dad's wife in 1 Corinthians. Paul's not afraid to stand up for the truth when it matters. So whatever's going on here between these two women, it must not have been over any kind of like major doctrine issue. It must not have been anything that was going to like result in the compromise of the gospel. But what Paul worries about compromising the gospel is the intensity. Whoa. (laughs) They must be having fun up there. Thank God for our kids. What Paul worries about compromising the gospel is the intensity of their disagreement with one another. The level of hostility and the fallout from their fight is going to be bigger than whatever it is that they're butting heads over, whatever they're disagreeing about. They had become the problem in the situation, not just the problem at hand. This is all too common of an occurrence within the context of community. Too often, we let the uncomfortable nature of having to address offense uh, make our situations more significant than they actually are. Then if you would have just had that conversation and handled it, we just kind of move on. You're like, man, I don't want to talk to him about it. I'm, I'm just not going to worry about it this time. But then over time, when you start to stack conflicts and issues, all of a sudden it does become something that's really significant. One way that I've seen this in my own life is that I have a tendency to withdraw in conflict or in uh, fighting. It's um, probably something I learned having grown up in a broken home and seen parents fight that I just, I didn't like it. I would, I would withdraw. I'd, I'd go hide away and try to be away from the conflicts that were happening. But that's a really unhealthy and, and not good for your relationships tendency to have when you're an adult trying to deal with people that you are inevitably going to have conflict with and butt heads with. But something will come up that makes me uncomfortable or maybe it hurts me and I just like, rather step back and say, I'm going to just let this die down a bit. I don't want to have to deal with this right now. Like, I'm sure they'll get over it or we'll get over it. Or worse, sometimes I'm thinking, well, maybe my isolation will cause them to apologize. They'll come to me because I'm creating the distance here. And uh, that doesn't always work. That doesn't always happen because people aren't wired that way. And that approach neglects the reality that Maybe there was something I did that played a part in the conflict. It, it makes me just to be this like innocent victim in the situation when relationships work two ways. And there's a good chance that if they're acting or responding towards me one way, maybe I'm not guiltless in this situation either. And if I just step back and withdraw, over time it just sits in this really awkward tension of like, yeah, just I'm really uncomfortable around that person right now because... I've just not addressed this, or I've just not handled this. And it'd probably be an easy conversation, but you're waiting for them to move or something, and weeks and maybe even months go by since that initial offense was, and now you have to deal with so much more when it is time to talk this through. The problem isn't just the issue I was initially offended over. Now I've become a part of the problem. 
because I'm not willing to pursue unity and restoration and healing. I've become a part of the problem because of how I've chosen to handle it. If we aren't intentional or thoughtful about how we handle our conflicts, they run the risk of becoming something bigger than they need to be. There'll be more to unpack, more to apologize for, more to forgive, just because we simply didn't agree with it correctly or deal with it correctly on the front end. The Bible offers us some really helpful frameworks for conflict management um, that, I, that I think are really powerful. We've got a slide for it here. Um, the, first, the first couple of passages here are actions. They're things that we can do when conflict arises. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 offers us kind of the process of dealing with conflict, saying that we should address the situation one-on-one first. That should always be our first goal is, I'm willing to confront you and tell you that, hey, this happened, this hurt me, this offended me. If it goes on unresolved from there, then we might bring in a trustworthy friend or two to say, hey, I heard they tried to settle this with you, that they tried to talk about this with you, and you weren't really willing to have this conversation. Maybe we need some mediation. Maybe we need a group here to work this thing out. And then sometimes, uh, and according to this passage, there is a uh, lane in which if the conflict continues on, that it's not inappropriate to get church leadership involved, to invite your pastor, to invite an elder in the community to step in and say, hey, can you help with this? I took this step. I took that step. They're still really unreasonable. They're still not willing to, to make any movement of restoring unity in this conversation. Would you help me here? And so that's kind of the process that's offered to us. We're also encouraged in Luke 17, 3 through 4, that we should forgive our brothers and sisters when they repent of wrongdoing. It says, even if they sinned against you seven times in seven days, if they come to you and say, I repent, it says you should forgive them. Forgiveness is often easier said than done. Other verses encourage us about the kind of heart posture, the attitude, or the perspective we should have. 2 Corinthians 13.11 tells us to settle our differences amongst ourselves, saying that we should aim for restoration. Our default goal and ambition in the midst of conflict should say, I want this thing fixed. I want to I solve this. I want to resolve our issues here. So much of the time, that's not our posture. Someone like me, who just sits back and says, I don't want to have to be the one to resolve this. I want them to resolve it. I want them to come to me, and then we'll work this out. When, according to the scriptures, my default posture, my aim should be that like my heart aches in those situations to have this brokenness restored. Philippians 2, 3-4, passage that we looked at just a few weeks ago, uh, says that in humility, we ought to value others above ourselves. Conflict and offense often puts us in this place of like self-preservation. It puts all of the attention and focus on ourselves. And before we know it, we have little to no regard for the person that we're in conflict for. And according to the scriptures, that's sinful. That's wrong. We should not go so far into self-preservation mode that we are unwilling to value others when we have conflict with them. And finally, there's, there's certainly more than this, but for today, Proverbs 19.11 says that we should be slow to anger, not letting a conflict intensify or burn in our hearts. Again, something that's easier said than done. Now, these are easy to affirm in the scriptures or to even think that it's like this good ideal or, yeah, that's, that's great practice of how we should handle 
our conflicts. But again, like I mentioned through all this, they're much easier said than done. So how do we bridge the gap between what we know is right and what is a proven and solid method uh, versus what we feel and how we'd prefer to act in those kinds of moments? First, I think we must consider the work of Christ, the ultimate example of reconciliation. While God had every right to reject and turn away from a rebellious and idolatrous humanity, he chose to reconcile us back to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The ongoing mercy and forgiveness he continues to show us as we're sanctified throughout our lives. You know, how many of us know that just because we receive salvation doesn't mean like I wake up the next day and I don't sin anymore. God's mercies are and, and his grace for us continue on. They continue to work with us and forgive us as we grow towards what God's called us to. God's restorative work was and continues to be miraculous and undeserved. I think about all the times that I have and continue to miss the mark. The reality that God still loves me and chooses to be in relationship with me can be really overwhelming at times. How undeserving of it I am how selfish and prideful I can be at times, how self-centered I can be. And the fact that I wake up, the Bible says that God's mercies are new each and every morning. It's like a clean slate. Every single day that I wake up with the Lord, he says, good morning, here's your mercies for today. I'm not holding over the, the punishment of separation from me today because of what Jesus did. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still your dad. I still love you. We're still doing this, even though you messed up yesterday, even though you did this wrong. God's reconciliation work continues to be miraculous. It continues to be merciful and gracious towards us. I really believe that those who often have the most difficult time forgiving have probably forgotten how much forgiveness they've received or how much they need. And I think one of the most powerful things to help us be a loving and forgiving and redemptive people is to remember first and foremost, I get to do this because God did that for me. When I have conflicts in my life and, and somebody says, you know, I'm, I don't deserve your forgiveness. I, you know, that, that was mean. That was terrible what I did to you. Well, yeah, but so was what I did to God. So was my rebellious and my broken heart towards him probably hurt him probably or certainly made me undeserving of his love. But he chooses to love me every day, so I get to choose to love you today and forgive you. The second thing we can do to bridge the gap between what, this framework of what we know is right and good and what we feel is to learn to walk this out by receiving the Holy Spirit to help us in this process. God not only graciously chooses to reconcile us um, despite your sin, but he offers to join you in helping you change. He sent the Holy Spirit to work within your heart to help you overcome anger, bitterness, offense, rage, any pain that would keep you away from pursuing a life of reconciliation. He can change your heart and he can help you turn the default habits of separating or distancing of gossip or slander or being divisive, passive aggressive, all these negative kind of default ways that you and I respond through the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can be rewired, we can be changed to be people who yearn for conflict resolution, who yearn for this restorative unity 
because God has changed something in our lives. It's not something that you have to go and, and, and really discipline and work yourself into. You can invite the Holy Spirit and say, God, I recognize this tendency in my life. I recognize this bitterness, this brokenness. I don't want this to be what controls me. I want to do this with you. Would you help me? The Bible says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit will be a helper that changes you, that works with you to make you more like Jesus. And finally, my last takeaway from this passage uh, from verse 3 is that uh, we have an obligation to be a community that is committed to restoring unity. It kind of started off on this level of stand firm, addressing the community. He, he calls up, if you were here last uh, week, you know, we don't just call out, we call up um, to Iodia and to Syntyc. And then finally, again, he addresses the community. Verse 3 says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. As mentioned earlier, a possible escalation point for interpersonal conflict is to get others involved to help smooth things out. In Matthew 18, we see an avenue in which we uh, can bring others in if we've attempted reconciliation and restoration one-on-one. But the community of Christ is meant to serve as a resource for one another as we work through conflicts that are bound to come up between us. I don't know about you, but I've had plenty of moments throughout my life where um, my, my parents or um, my wife or my boss will tell me something negative that they say, that they see in me. And like, hey, you know, I've, I've noticed this trend in you recently. And because it's just one person, and because maybe of the nature of the relationship that you have with this person, you don't really hear it very well. And you're like, I don't, I don't think you're right. I think you're off on this. I'm not acting that way. I'm not being this way. Something must be off with you because I don't think I'm doing anything wrong here. It can be, it can be much easier to deny certain accusations or calling ups when it's just one-on-one. But when I have two or three other people sit down and say, Casey, we saw you in this environment act this way. We know that it's been this way. It's not just your wife. It's not just your pastor or your boss. It's a lot of us are sitting here saying, what's happening right now? What's going on with you? Can we talk this out? Can we figure this out? And all of a sudden, I'm sitting there being like, oh, this is much harder to deny. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is much more challenging uh, because you are three or four independent people who have come to this conclusion and are now addressing this with me. When we engage in conflict management together, we have more voices, more perspectives, more questions to ask to help get to the core of issues and challenges that we face. The ideal is that we'd settle our issues one-on-one, but when necessary, the community of believers should be a resource to help. Another way we remain committed to restoring community, uh, unity as a community is by reminding each other of the goal of reconciliation when someone approaches you about offense that they're dealing with. Um, oftentimes, it's really easy when somebody approaches you and says, man, I just had this happen with so-and-so, and they're just the worst, and I just am so hurt over this and so frustrated and bothered, and, and maybe they go on to say even meaner things about them. And if you've maybe even had a hint of that experience, your default might be to say, oh, yeah, no, that happened to me once too. Or, uh, you know, you're totally right. That person is that way. And all of a sudden, we're just jumping in, and we are 
kind of supporting whatever anger or frustration. And there are times that it's okay to have that conversation, to sit down and concern and say, hey, have you noticed this in so-and-so? But the appropriate thing that should conclude that conversation is, okay, what are we going to do about it? Have you had that conversation with that person yet? Do, do you need my help in sitting down and talking with them? Too often, the conversation just ends up with this like unhealthy gossip session about the conflict and about the individual or the leader, and it just heightens the issue. It leads to more frustration and anger and tension. But when someone in the community comes to us and we hold them accountable to this biblical framework, to this posture and to this attitude that we're supposed to have, we're going to hold one another accountable to unity and restoration. This means discouraging healthy attitudes and postures. It means knowing this biblical strategy and choosing to use that as our source and path of resolution. Asking, have you taken the right steps to deal with this? Not jumping in and slandering more, jumping in and gossiping more, but saying, hey, what, what are we going to do about this? I hear you. That, that sounds like a terrible situation. I'm so sorry this happened to you. How can I help you take the right steps to restore unity in this situation? That's the way that we become a community that doesn't just serve ourselves as individuals, but it's a way that we protect one another too. There's so many church communities, there's so many people that have been through environments where they didn't have a system like this in place, maybe because of unhealthy power dynamics, maybe because of um, just really sad, broken realities within a, a church community, and people are vulnerable. They're unprotected. They get like ganged up on when it comes time to dealing with an issue rather than saying, hey, we, we have a path and, a, and a, an intended goal to restore unity here in this community. Like we, we don't sit around and just let these things get worse. I'm not going to sit here and entertain more gossip or more slander about this leader or about this person. But, but as a community, like we're committed to working this stuff out, to figuring this out together. And so let's jump in. And it's a way that we protect and honor one another and that we create a safe and growing space for the community to restore unity and to walk in life together. Worship team, you can come on up. The world around us is full of division. Our human nature bends us to want to participate. And unfortunately, we have so many avenues and opportunities to participate uh, through social media, through gossiping uh, with one another. Speaking of social media, you know, sometimes, like, even if, it's, even if it's not a page that someone follows, if you go and comment on somebody else's page, there's, like, a good chance it pops up on my Facebook or someone else's Facebook, and, and it's like, I don't even follow whatever page it is, but, like, oh, man, I didn't know they would go on Facebook and say something nasty like that in, a, in this political group or, or different things like that. Like, we think sometimes we're really sly and hidden about this stuff. It's not. It comes out. It shows I know far too many people in this community that are committed to restoring unity that if gossip starts to happen, someone says, hey, you might want to talk to so-and-so. I heard them say this to me or to someone else, and I don't know if they're going to take the right steps to talk to you about it, but I just wanted you to know because I think you should have the opportunity to do something right about it here to restore this. We often think we're so cunning and sly with the ways that we might participate in ways that can lead to division and whatnot. But 
It always comes to light. I think there's a Bible verse about that somewhere. Until Jesus returns, we aren't guaranteed any special path that gets us out of conflict. As long as we do life with one another, we're going to offend and frustrate each other. But that's where we have the opportunity to be different in the world. That's where we have the opportunity to stand out and create a a family unit that somebody can't find if they're in the streets of Eugene anywhere else. That they would walk into any other club or organization or group and be able to find that kind of unity and that kind of restorative aim that says, you hurt me, you offended me. I feel like I have every right to separate from you, but I'm gonna forgive you and I'm gonna welcome you back and we're gonna grow and we're gonna be better because of this situation. You and I have the opportunity to be a witness for Christ as we practice restorative unity, both as individuals and as a community. In a Western culture with very little grace and tolerance for the mistakes and offenses of others, we get to be like Jesus, who seeks reconciliation when someone has wronged us. Additionally, we get to receive grace when we live in a community like this. Because if I was really willing to look at myself, I know eventually I'm going to frustrate you. I'm going to bother you. We might go out on some serve initiative. We might spend time in a small group together. Eventually, there's going to be something that you don't like about me. I'm going to need your grace because I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up. Hopefully not intentionally. Hopefully it's accidental. But I'm going to mess up. And I want to be a part of a community where I'm allowed to be progressing towards what God has called me to not have to exemplify and be the perfect being that I know someday God will make me into being in eternity, but a place where I get to show grace and love and I get to receive grace and love as I grow towards Christ. With Christ as our example and the Holy Spirit as our empowerment, we get to create a community where Christ's ideals of forgiveness, grace, and mercy reign supreme. The grace of this world is fickle. It'll cancel you in the blink of an eye not ever give any reason to associate with you or make things right. But the grace of God is never ending. His mercies are new every day and the opportunity to be restored and to have unity is available because of his great love for us. And God's church, his community can embody this too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we live in such a broken world, such a hurting world. And Father, we don't, we don't want to be the same. We want to create a place where people can come and follow you and can grow and can learn and love. Father, there's not a lot of places like that. I've had so many relationships in my life. People walk away because of my mistakes, because of my shortcomings. And I thank you, Father, first and foremost, that you've never done that to me. You don't do that to us. You are a loving and compassionate Father whose mercies are new each and every day. And so God, we just thank you for the mercy and grace that you offer towards a wicked and sinful humanity. The brokenness and chaos that we have caused in the world around us, Lord, you still choose to love us and we say thank you for that today. And God, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to help empower us to live a life that models and represents who you are as a restorative God, as a loving Father. God, we recognize that on our own standards, 
left to our own strength, our own willpower, we will go into self-preservation mode. We will be selfish. We will think about ourselves. And so, Father, we humbly ask you to change us today, to make us into people that are like Jesus, that love and forgive and yearn for reconciliation, that avoid gossip and slander and division, but yearn to be healed when conflicts come up because that's who you are. That's what you did for us. So help us as we aim for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.